You have a streetscape which has already designed out trees and it makes it very difficult to put those trees back into the space. The Australian dream is McMansion, uh, not uh, house and garden, and that is a real shame. Uh, it's a real detriment to the livability of our neighbourhoods. It's a real risk in terms of our resilience in uh, a changing and a warming climate. The issue here is that doesn't have to be. The tendency for houses to be built to lot size without allowing space for mature trees to grow does condition a certain kind of lifestyle going into the future. Trees. We know about the multitude of benefits trees have for the environment as a method to store carbon and for our physical and mental health. It's why there's such a big focus on planting a million trees here and a million trees over there. But where exactly do all of these trees go? In streets? Public land? What about your backyard? Would you even have room to plant a tree close to your home? It's fair to say there's been a lot of focus on planting trees in public spaces. But in this episode, we're heading closer to home, literally, and talking about greening up our backyards. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. So my name's Joe Hurley, I'm an Associate Professor at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research and I work on urban sustainability and urban greening issues. In terms of the scale of urban forestry, how much is actually on private land versus public land? Do we know a kind of a general ratio? So when we think about the urban forest, I talk about the urban forest as, as all the, the green matter, the vegetation in our cities, and that exists across a whole lot of different types of urban land. And one of the key distinctions that we focus on in our work is that difference between the public realm and the private realm. And depending on the city, but in an Australian context, uh, around about half of urban vegetation is supported by private land, by, by in that private realm. And the vast majority of that is private residential land. If you are a local to Sydney, the amount of trees in your neighbourhood largely depends on where you live. In Sydney's north, the Hornsby Shire has one of the largest urban forest cover in Sydney, at 78.6%. Whereas in Bayside Council in Sydney's south, this is where the airport is located, they have just 17.2%. This is according to a 2020 report by the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University and Greener Spaces Better Places. Joe has been working with other researchers to analyse how urban forestry is changing over time. We see that the loss that's occurring in cities, for example, in Melbourne, we found an overall loss in vegetation in our study period um, from 2016, that was 2014 through to 2018. Uh, that loss is occurring in private land. So if we only focus in the public realm and ignore what's happening in the private realm, we're creating um, not only uh, a blind spot to that really important contribution in the private realm, but also doubling 
the, the need that might be required out of the public realm contribution to vegetation. And it's just, there's just not enough space and there's too many computing, competing uses for that space for us really to achieve that. So we must also focus our attention on what's happening in that private realm and look at the different uh, education opportunities, partnership opportunities with landowners and also regulatory opportunities uh, through local controls and the planning scheme to make sure that we're not systematically eroding that contribution of vegetation from the private realm over time to make sure that the private realm continues to provide a really important component of that overall urban forest as green infrastructure in our cities. Joe's research has been looking at how cities are changing. One of the factors is how our cities are being developed. A 2020 study benchmarking the urban areas of Sydney, Melbourne and Perth highlights that as cities become denser, trees from the traditional house and garden design are being replaced by buildings and hard surfaces. But when it comes to the loss of urban forestry, apparently we can't just point the finger at development. We do see considerable areas of loss in vegetation in our cities. And when we look by different land use types or land ownership types, a lot of that loss is in the private realm and private residential land. The question as to what's driving that loss is also quite complex uh, and, and varied. When we look in detail at loss in vegetation, we can see quite a significant influence from urban development. That is the kind of formal processes of changing the urban landscape at the lot scale and the aggregated impact of that. We can see that through, for example, formal building permit and planning permit applications, and then look at the loss of vegetation. So development is a significant driver of vegetation loss, but it's certainly not the only driver in private in the private realm. It probably accounts, you know, in the studies we've done for, for up to about um, two fifths or 40%, if you like, of, of loss in vegetation, which leaves a whole lot of other questions loss that are outside of that development process. Joe interviewed local government professionals to investigate what factors are leading to the loss of vegetation in our neighbourhoods. And a lot of those drivers are to do with the individual decisions of landowners, of people living in you know, residential lots around our cities uh, that can be varied. It can be um, people who are unhappy with the mess being created by the tree or vegetation or worried about safety. Uh, it might be a minor re-landscaping or remodeling, the inclusion of a swimming pool or, or, or an alfresco dining area. Uh, in many areas of our cities, and this is particularly so in Sydney, everyone seems to think they've got a, a, a really amazing view of, of the harbour or of the mountains. If only they remove those one or two trees that are blocking the view. So the whole range of reasons that we see incremental loss in, in vegetation and in particular canopy trees across our urban landscape, across our private realm urban landscape over time. Much of that is development and development activity, but a whole lot of that is just the individual decisions of landowners on their lots. a range of really interesting social and cultural tensions around trees, one of which um, in Sydney, which is a very culturally diverse city, 
is that people like to grow food in their gardens and to grow food in your gardens you need sunlight <laughs> you need access to the sun so the idea of putting shade trees um, has a cultural dimension to it it needs negotiation it's not a kind of black and white thing or in fact a quantitative thing only I'm Associate Professor Abby Melick Lopez I'm a design researcher in the School of Design at UTS and I'm also the course director of postgraduate design studies Abby Melick Lopez is a researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's been researching the heat maps in Western Sydney, an area close to her heart as a local. We often hear about tree canopy described as a quantitative measure. We're going to plant 5 million trees. We're going to increase tree canopy by 30%, for example, in Canterbury-Bankstown, which is where I live. And yet you have a streetscape which has already designed out trees and it makes it very difficult to put those trees back into the space. So we need to be thinking um, about where those trees might go and it needs to be a collaborative conversation with residents who have, you know, very diverse values um, around trees, around plants, what they want from their natural environments and from their gardens and that needs to be a sort of a, a collaborative conversation because there are lots of assumptions <laughs> um, that are floating around and really we do need to question some of those. The heat maps of Western Sydney found a clear equity issue around access to green spaces. There was heat maps that demonstrated that there was a kind of correlation between the lowest income communities and the lack of um, green cover and the hottest kind of ground temperatures. And so really that there is a really clear picture around tree canopy and equity. Associate Professor Joe Hurley also looked at the trends of tree canopy cover in urban areas. What we see is older established areas of our cities have more canopy cover, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is they've had more time for trees to grow. So our newer areas have less canopy cover, in part because trees that are there are not fully mature. But that's only a part of the answer. A more significant part is those newer areas are not providing the space for those canopy trees, particularly in the private realm. We've got better at providing canopy trees in the streetscapes and parks of, of newer development areas, but not in the private realm. So that's one reason that our established suburbs have higher canopy area. In terms of the trends where we're losing trees, we see that more so in those established suburbs. Now that makes sense because that's where the trees are. There are trees to lose. Um, so we, we, we might expect to see loss there more often. It's also where we see considerable redevelopment pressure, incremental redevelopment of those suburbs over time where lot by lot, we're seeing knockdown rebuilds, one for one replacement, still resulting in the loss of nearly all vegetation and very little return. Two, three lot subdivisions, again, loss of all of that vegetation with very little return, or indeed higher density development where we're seeing apartment blocks. Um, again, the loss of vegetation with, higher, with very little return. The key point here in that loss, from my point of view, is it is not about density. It's not about housing yield. It's just about development full stop. We need to address that impact and require of that development 
a re-contribution to the private realm vegetation in our cities. Otherwise, we risk seeing that continual erosion of vegetation in those existing leafy areas because of the loss on private land. So how do we go about addressing the loss of urban forestry on private land? Joe suggests some examples of what he calls carrot and stick initiatives. More proactive engagement with residents through tree planting schemes, giving away trees, supporting residents um, to, to bring you know, new trees into, onto their lots, uh, education around the importance of vegetation in the cities so that residents understand the contribution they make through their own private land to a collective infrastructure and the benefits that gives them and their communities. One of the interesting um, stories coming out of interviewing uh, local government officials in in Sydney is also the issue of bushfire and the perceived risk of bushfire, and that can also be the case in the in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. Um, but there's also a sense that the the threat of bushfire, while for many is uh, is a legitimate mo- uh, motivator for the removal of trees. For others, um, you know, there is a sense that it's being used as an opportunity to justify the removal of vegetation uh, where otherwise it might have been prohibited. There's a complex and, and often perverse impact of a regulation uh, that allows for the clearance of vegetation around bushfire prone areas that is perhaps exacerbating the removal of trees for other factors like the opening up of views or the removal of something that's perceived as a nuisance. You mentioned earlier about people kind of using that loophole of um, removing trees for bushfire zones. Should there be a bit of more of a stricter um, policies in terms of fines or or preventing people from removing trees unnecessarily? Yes, um, there should. So one of the aspects there is um, being able to rigorously evaluate the impact of our interventions. So that in that case, perhaps it's a policy intervention. Uh, and this comes back to that issue of good quality monitoring of the urban forest and the dynamics in the urban forest over time. Assessing, for example, a policy mechanism that aims to provide for um, resilience in bushfires. Um, it is important to also examine the potential perverse impacts of a policy mechanism like that. And maybe that there is a need to um, refine a policy instrument to ensure that both bushfire safety outcomes are delivered, as well as sensible protection of urban vegetation in, in our cities. In terms of enforcement, Uh, and financial penalties. They are a big part of the mix of any um, suite of policy measures uh, in an urban context, and they exist in the space of urban forests. A lot of the challenges around resourcing the enforcement. It's one thing to have rules. If those rules are not perceived to have an impact, then there is a proportion of people who are not going to be too concerned with those rules. So thinking about the way our policy is implemented, the enforcement and the penalties for non-compliance is an important part of the overall picture, but it's not going to be 
successful if we don't have alongside that ongoing efforts to ensure our communities understand why those policy mechanisms are there and why those penalties might be there. Otherwise, we just won't have the political support, the political will um, to, to enact that kind of policy and that kind of enforcement. So there are millions of trees being planted in Western Sydney, but of course we're looking at 50 degree summer days by mid-century and already our summers are in, in unbearably hot and people are already, you know, trapped in their homes, in often poorly designed homes um, in summer. It's not just about your four walls, but feeling at home in your neighbourhood, in your place, being able to walk to places or get access, for example, to, you know, Penrith is... I think the hottest suburb in the world or something or has been um, at certain points, particularly in January. On the 4th of January in 2020, Penrith was the hottest place on earth. The suburb in Western Sydney reached 48.9 degrees Celsius. During heat waves, one of the key heat mitigating tools is to have these cool refuges that people can use during the day. However, Penrith has this beautiful reserve near the river, Tench Reserve, but people can't access it because there isn't the transport to get them there. So we need shuttle buses. We need, you know, a sort of environment that actually is furnished with the resources that allow people to get to cool environments if they are, you know, in old housing that is, you know, poorly designed or in new developments with young trees, you know. So they need to be able to get to those cool refuges um, whether they be uh, sites of, you know, nature along the river, you know, cool refuges, shopping malls and so on that have got air conditioning or public swimming pools. Um, This is all an infrastructure of cooling that needs to go together with the tree picture um, to enable livability in those hot areas. So it makes sense. We need cool refuges in our communities and the ability to access them. Abby also believes we need to be linking our behaviour alongside our built and green infrastructure. If the coolest part of the day is in the evenings, shouldn't we be encouraging public spaces to be open later in the day? The lighting is such that people don't feel their safe spaces. So you've got this beautiful tree canopy during the day and shade that allows people to be comfortable but at night that's suddenly not very inviting because it's dark and you don't know who's lurking around those trees so you know these are really um, important questions so if we are going to start to be inhabiting cooler times of the day and it might be that it, it's so hot that we you know we can't sleep so we want to get out into the community and walk or um yeah if those are the better times of the day to be social with our neighbors for example again we need the spaces considered and designed in such a way to invite that use and at the moment it, it's it's not really being designed in that way It might be the whole chicken before the egg debate. Is the infrastructure and design encouraging us to use public spaces in a certain way? Or are those designs based on our current behaviour? Either way, if we need to change our behaviour to adapt to our changing climate, 
then it only seems fitting that our public spaces also need to adapt. So if you're moving into a new development, rather than just assuming that people are always going to be in their cars, they don't like, you know, spending time in public spaces in the evenings, they just want to go in their car to their between their work and home and drive to the supermarket and so on. Why don't we rather say, okay, the way we do things around here in this in this um, new development is that we have this, uh, these cool commons, we have these trees and these are the sorts of trees they are and these are the sorts of trees these trees will become but they depend upon our collective care. And so we have a kind of cooperative way of managing and looking after um, this important resource for your future, for your children's future, for your grandchildren. And we're going to live in this space and be able to move around this city. Um, so that kind of collective care, I think, is, is a conversation that we don't typically have because there's such an assumption um, that people are kind of just interested in their own backyard as, as such. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of possibility for that collective care. Um, and I think there's lots of examples of um, the ways in which people like to feel part of a collective rather than just their, you know, little, um, little patch of the world. We are seeing population growth. Um, we're definitely going to be, our development's going to increase. We're going to be building lots and lots and lots of houses. So I guess we are going to see new development and new design. This whole idea of the Australian dream or the American dream used to be having that backyard, you know, having all the trees, which just seems to be more and more rare to be able to find that. So I wonder if that change of development from that idyllic house with the backyard to now um, much more likely seeing um, complexes and apartments where that's had an impact on our not only the rate of tree canopy but maybe even the value of it this whole notion of the australian dream as um you know the lot with the house and the large garden you know that that is something that is to some extent never really been true for broad areas of our city and certainly uh, is not really part of the current um, or likely future landscape of development and that's uh, for a range of reasons yes apartment dwelling yes you know higher density development but the kind of house on lot development that still dominates our city development on the fringes and much of our redevelopment in existing areas is a trend that's been occurring for many decades to larger houses uh, on existing lots and often those lots uh, smaller lots as well but it's about building footprint size and that's squeezing out vegetation so um, you know the Australian dream of a, a modest house and a large garden is is not something that exists and uh, in the new development lexicon in cities and it's not because of apartment dwelling only or primarily that that's the reason. There are a whole range of factors there. One of the biggest drivers of loss through development in our existing urban landscapes in cities is what we would term the knockdown rebuild. That is the removal of an old house and replacement with a new house. In that process, so it's a one-for-one -one change. There's no new dwelling supply. It's not providing increased dwelling density. 
but what you see in that process is almost exclusively the complete removal of vegetation and the replacement of a house that had a modest building footprint with one that occupies the maximum allowable under the planning scheme of that lot. And the remaining outdoor space is often taken up by driveways, by hard paving, by outdoor kind of entertaining areas, if you like, that have very little vegetation and almost no space for large canopy trees. That's been designed out of the Australian dream. The Australian dream is McMansion, uh, not uh, house and garden. And that is a real shame. Uh, it's a real detriment to um, the livability of our neighbourhoods. It's a real risk in terms of our resilience in uh, a changing and a warming climate. The issue here is that doesn't have to be. We can provide, and in isolated cases do provide, higher density development and significant contribution of vegetation, including canopy trees. We can produce urban landscapes that have high density and good vegetation, but we need to design that. We need to design that in, we need to build that in and not just expect it to come. Yes, I'm not sure about the dream. Um, I, I think it is a luxury to have a tree in your backyard, but I think, yeah, as I've said, uh, uh, the idea that our home is just our little patch um, is is kind of challenged by um, the demands of, um, yeah, resilience and what we want from our cities in the future, which is, yeah, a much more of a social commons, I think, and um, a space that we can all feel at home in. So when we're discussing planting more trees for our future, then it seems fitting that we also have to be looking up private spaces, our own backyards, rather than just the public space and the public sphere. This also means that we have quite the influence on how we ourselves can add greenery and be part of this conversation. The urban forest is an absolutely critical resource of our cities for livability, for health, for climate resilience, for biodiversity. Up to half of that exists in the private realm, in backyards, in balconies, in courtyards of apartment complexes. That is making an absolutely critical contribution to this shared asset, a collective asset that benefits us all. So you are all playing a role in nurturing and maintaining that asset, that really important element of our urban living. So be proud of that and continue to contribute to it and think about ways that you might be able to enhance that contribution on your private realm. Uh, whether it's uh, keeping a tree that otherwise might've seen to be um, causing a little bit of nuisance, seeing that in a different light, uh, whether it's planting new trees, vegetation, um, e even you know small vegetation on balconies is really important, for example, uh, for pollinators, for biodiversity in our cities. There are many things uh, that we can do, whether we've got large space or small space, to contribute to this wonderful shared resource we have in our city uh, and encourage you know, people in your community to recognise the value of what all those little contributions and people's private realm make to our shared collective experience of the city uh, and celebrate the protection and, and, and enhancement of that asset. 
Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.